greetings to you all from Raleigh and Jacksonville, North Carolina congregations. My wife and I met with them in combined services two weeks ago in Smithfield, North Carolina. And then last Sabbath we were in Norfolk, Virginia. So we send greetings to all of you from them. We enjoyed our 11-day anniversary trip through the Outer Banks of North Carolina and up into Virginia where we visited the capital, state capital in Richmond, state capital in Raleigh, North Carolina as well. And thank you very much for your prayers and for your encouraging messages. As you read in the bulletin and on the news and prophecy, there is war and violence all over the world and continues in various hot spots. The Apostle Paul gave the reason why. That's in Romans 3. He said, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Why? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. They can't think godly thoughts. That's in Romans 3, verses 15 through 18, where the Apostle Paul was quoting from the prophet Isaiah. For God has called us all to be peacemakers, and he's called us to live a way of life that he describes as light. Uh, God even calls us sons of light. You might turn there to 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. 1 Thessalonians 5. We need to be alert and awake, as he tells us here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Seems to have almost disappeared from my Bible, but it's here. 1 Thessalonians 5. And let's start in verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, breaking into the thought, so that this day should overtake you as a thief, that is, the return of Christ. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So God has called us to walk in the light and to live a way of godly love, as we heard in the sermonette, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love one another. That way of life, of course, is the way of giving, of serving, of caring, of helping, sharing. But we reflect that way of life from an internal source. That's our heart and character. We also reflect God's character in our words, but our words come from our thoughts. Do our words encourage or do our words discourage? Do our words promote love? Or do our words promote hate? Do our thoughts reflect godly meditation and thinking, or do they reflect carnality, selfishness, and vanity? As sons and daughters of light and of the day, we need to reflect and speak the words of truth and love, and we need to think godly thoughts. A few weeks ago, I gave a sermon on words of truth. We all know the power of words, what we say and what we communicate. I won't turn there, but Proverbs 18, verse 21, gives the powerful reality that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. 
We want to turn people to life. We're giving that warning and preaching the good news that they might be turned to righteousness. We have an awesome responsibility to use the gift of language, the gift of communication, the gift of words in a godly way. We need to strive to speak the truth in love, as it says in Ephesians 4, verse 15. Turn to Luke, the sixth chapter, Luke 6, again to see that total connection of your character to your thoughts and to your words. Luke, the sixth chapter, and verse 45. Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart is someone who has character, who has been practicing the way of God, the way of love, and bearing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We are what we think. How we think reflects our true nature and our true character. The title of this sermon today is The Meditation of My Heart. What are your thoughts? Are they godly, righteous, and loving? How godly are your meditations of your heart? Let's turn to Psalm 19, from which that phrase appears. Psalm 19. In a sense, this sermon is the second part of the sermon I gave a few weeks ago on the power of words and the words of truth. Psalm 19, verse 14. It has two major parts. One is the words of my mouth, and the other is the meditation of my heart. So David prays in Psalm 19, verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Is that your daily prayer? And if you do meditate, on what foundation do you meditate? And what do you think about most of the time? We have to face the reality, as you'll turn to Isaiah 55, this awesome reality, the contrast between godly thinking and human thinking. Yet God has called us to be like him, to think like he thinks. Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the eternal while he may be found. There's a time coming when... He's going to say, nope, it's too late. You had your opportunity. You're going to have to learn some very serious lessons through a great tribulation. Seek the eternal while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And we're giving that message to the world through the media, through the telecast, publications, the Internet. Let the wicked forsake his way, and notice, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. What are your thoughts like? Let him return to the eternal, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's part of the good news, that God will forgive us whenever we have that repentant attitude, and we need that attitude till the day we die, that we will confess our sins. We will immediately admit a wrong thought. We will immediately 
repent of wrong actions and words. But notice verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, or nor are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But God wants us to have thoughts like him. That's the default position of the world. The world is that way. Its thoughts are carnal, lowly, substandard. But God wants us to have thoughts like he thinks. Again, I remind you the quotable quote that I was impressed with by Dr. Meredith's visit. He was in Pasadena at the time but visited us the Ambassador College Big Sandy campus, and I guess that was about 1974, about 40 years ago. And as you know, I write down quotable quotes from time to time, and I wrote down that quote, Saturate your mind with the Word of God. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. That is going to help you to have the meditations, the thoughts, the thinking that God wants you to have. So how can we have the mind of God? How can we discipline our minds to think like God thinks? We'll consider the causes of wrong thinking and discuss some principles and benefits of godly meditation. But what do you think about? We're in a very busy world. We have various responsibilities. We have the soccer moms that have to take care of their children and take care of their home, and they're running to and fro, and have little time to stop and think and meditate. And some do not concentrate on focusing on one task at a time. Many in the world try multitasking. How many of you are multitaskers? Do you think you can do different tasks simultaneously? From Psychology Today is this report. Dr. Strayer, director of the Applied Cognition Lab at the University of Utah, who studies multitasking in the fertile realm of distracted driving, found that, quote, 98% of people can't multitask. 98% of people can't multitask. They don't do either task as well. But here's the interesting part. 2% of people can juggle without dropping a ball or indeed without any ball even sailing less high They show no ill effects from multitasking, 2%. Strayer calls these people supertaskers. The very structure of the supertasker brain looks different than those of the 98% of us. Quote, these brain regions that differentiate supertaskers from the rest of the population are the same regions that are most different between humans and non-human primates, says Strayer. So if you are a supertasker, I just wonder if you have non-human primate brain. But anyway, how focused are you and disciplined in your thinking? Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. You know the benefit that God gives us for our minds because we were not all there when we were created. 2 Timothy, the first chapter. We do have a human spirit that God says you need something more. You need the Holy Spirit. So in 2 Timothy 1, 
and verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands, or other translations have fanned the flame. For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, as some of the translations have it, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So God wants us to use the power of mind, the thinking ability that he gives us with sound-mindedness. Other translations have it, but of power and love and of discipline. So how sound is your thinking? How disciplined is your thinking? Well, God wants us to be able to evaluate, to be able to judge righteous judgments. Dr. Meredith wrote as Chancellor of Living University in our Living University catalog under the founder's statement. He writes about true education. Quote, We live and function in an interdependent world. Accordingly, we believe that a university education should include not only developing a personal understanding of the underlying purposes and meaning of human life, but a mastery of needed secular knowledge and development of critical thinking skills as well. The foundation to do so, however, necessitates internalizing the worthwhile values, wisdom, and understanding embedded in the Bible, the missing dimension in education. We're very thankful to have 11 on-site Living University students here and a record 233, 230 that are enrolled in Living University. Well, God wants us to prove all things. You know that by heart, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Prove all things, test all things, hold fast that which is good. And once we prove the truth, We hold on to the truth. We internalize it. It's a part of our righteous, holy character that God is creating in us. The Ambassador College Catalog, 1979-1980. We have the founder's statement from Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, a principle that's really helped my focus over the years. Page 20 of the founder's statement from the Ambassador College Catalog. Quote, And this applies, of course, to Living University. Ambassador students are taught the missing dimension in education, as Dr. Meredith referred to. The underlying purpose and the real meaning of life and the worthwhile values, the basic laws of success, not only in economic fields, but in life as whole. They are given individual attention in the development of character, poise, culture, and personality. Listen to this. They are taught to think about what they are doing while they are doing it. They are taught to think about what they are doing while they are doing it. Ambassador College is literally a character-building institution. It is therefore unique. The ambassador motto is recapture the true values, the same motto for Living University. So you may be one of the 2% who can multitask, But for the rest of us, most of us must focus. We must think about what we're doing while we're doing it. And we're striving to recapture true values. And that's a blessing to be a part of the solution, as Mr. Rod McNair mentioned in the announcements. We can be thankful that we are part of the grand solution to the world's problems. 
we meditate on the true values. The true values of what? The true values of sports. No, you don't try to ruin the other opponent. You are practicing the values of team effort and teamwork. You learn the values of respect and cooperation. The true values of sports, of art, of literature, of business, of music, of architecture, of science, of marriage and the family. You're thinking about those values because you are going to teach the world those biblical values in tomorrow's world. But what godly values are a part of your character and are you living those values? Do you have time to think? Do you take time to think? The famous physicist Albert Einstein gave this perspective on the concept of relativity and how we think. Quote, put your hand on a hot stove for a minute and it seems like an hour. Sit with a pretty girl for an hour and it seems like a minute. That's relativity, end of quote. Well, as I told the uh, office staff when they had a little celebration for our 50th, the wedding anniversary, I thought that the most wonderful compliment my wife could give me was, well, 50 years didn't seem that long. So I'm very, very thankful for that, very, very much. But how we think depends on our circumstances, and God has called us to be the world's best thinkers. The Foreign Policy Magazine of December 2010 listed the selection of the top 100 thinkers in the world. But are they really the top thinkers? They may have a type of humanistic thinking, but it is not godly thinking. Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, was selected as number 10, quote, for leading Europe through the recession with Teutonic resolve, end of quote. President Barack Obama was selected as number three, quote, for charting a course through criticism, end of quote. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett were chosen as number one, quote, for stepping up as the world states falter, end of quote. They were willing to donate billions of dollars for charity. They are, quote, on a mission to create a global club of great givers for charity, end of quote. To a certain degree, they're applying the biblical principle of Acts 20, verse 35. It's more blessed to give than to receive, or as the Moffat translation has it, to give is happier than to get. But frankly, brethren, God has called us to be the world's greatest thinkers. Why? because we are in training to be kings and priests, judges and leaders in tomorrow's world. We have to think God's way. Are you learning? Let's turn to Philippians 2 and verse 5. Philippians 2 and verse 5. One of the most fundamental principles of how we all should think. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Just going to introduce this thought, and we'll come back to it later. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is our thinking like? We have to think like Christ thinks. There was a famous statue by the French sculptor 
Auguste Rodin. It was called The Thinker. It was supposed to depict Dante before the gates of hell uh, meditating on his poem. The sculpture is made of marble and bronze. It's now in the Musée Rodin in Paris. Some years ago, my wife gave me a pair of bookends with this famous sculpture, The Thinker. I wondered why she gave me that gift. It does make you think, doesn't it? But, But here... Mr. Herbert Armstrong comments on that sculpture, The Thinker, in Mystery of the Ages, page 11. Quote, you probably have seen the picture of the statue of The Thinker, a man sitting alone, leaning forward, elbows on his knees, his hands supporting his head. Uh, There supposedly he sits deeply in thought, hour after hour, day after day, just thinking. Supposedly that statue depicts the manner in which some of the religions of this world came into being. But the thinker had nothing to think from. No foundation for his thinking. No facts on which to have his conjectures. The human mind is not equipped to manufacture truth with no basis for truth. However few it seems really think. Mr. Armstrong continues, Most people accept carelessly what they have been taught from childhood and coming into maturity, they accept that which they have repeatedly heard, read, or been taught. They continue to go along, usually without question, with their peers. Most people do not realize it, but they have carelessly assumed what they believe without question or proof. And so we emphasize critical thinking. We want to seek the truth, prove the truth. But there's a foundation for that process, and that's God's word. He continues, yet they will defend vigorously and emotionally their convictions. It has been human nature for people to flow with a stream, to go along with the crowd, to believe and perform like their peers around them. Let's turn to John, the 8th chapter, John 8. Now, we need to have the mind of Christ, and the way we think is based on the revelation that God has given us. John 8. Remember the two trees which represent the knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. And Adam and Eve chose the way that led to our current world situation now that mankind decides for himself what is right and wrong and reject the tree of life, which represented revelation from God. And we, brethren, have proven that source. What is God's revelation? It's this book from beginning to end, as Dr. Meredith phrases it, the mind of God. This reveals the very thoughts in the mind of God from beginning to end. John 8, verse 32, you know that memorization verse, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. My wife and I had the privilege of visiting Monticello, the home of the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who was conversant in seven languages, languages, uh, very brilliant, uh, was in, uh, skilled in architecture, agriculture, a very skillful person, and he emphasized liberty. He emphasized freedom. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. And yet, he and Americans still missed the greater foundation of liberty and true freedom. John 8.32, you shall know the truth, 
And the truth shall make you free. We have an awesome privilege that God has given us. But notice how you maintain that truth. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are my students, you are my disciples indeed. And I hope we continually keep that effort up knowing that we are students, disciples of Christ. How many on earth know the truth? I just uh, looked at the world population clock this morning on uh, the Internet, and the population clock continually updates every second by second uh, based on various assumptions of deaths and births and so forth. And at 9-11 this morning, the world population clock put the world population at 7,255,725,370. You know how privileged you are. Even if we assume that 72,557 people on earth know the truth, and you happen to be one of them, that's only one out of 100,000 on the face of the earth that knows the truth. How privileged are you and how thankful are you to know that truth? Elijah, Elijah thought he was the only one that had the truth, and God told him, that uh, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed them. So God knows how many are alive that really know the truth and are living by the truth and are obeying the truth. I asked my wife one time, what was one of the greatest blessings of our human mind? And she answered, to think the thoughts of God. When I talked to her about that this morning, she said that wasn't original with her, that she heard that from the son of Elizabeth Stafford, Stephen, when he was a little boy. He wanted to think like God thought. But you really think that God has called you and me to think the thoughts of God. We just read in Philippians 2.5 that we're to have the mind of Christ. So what are the thoughts of God? The Word of God, the Scriptures, show us what they are. Just look at a few encouraging Scriptures revealing God's thoughts. Do you think the way God thinks? Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Very encouraging Scripture. God reveals how He thinks. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal. He's being very personal and open with us. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Eternal. Oh, you know God's thoughts. Thoughts of peace and not of evil give you a future, to give you a hope. Lamentations 3, I don't know if it was read uh, by Mr. Nathan uh, a couple weeks ago, but Lamentations 3, verse 22, another very encouraging thought of God. 
right after the book of Jeremiah, Lamentations. Oh, when you read through Lamentations, you see the very mournful and lamenting and sorrowful heart when Jeremiah was seeing all the tragedy and all the death and disease and cannibalism going on in Jerusalem. And if we mourn now, perhaps we won't have to mourn in the Great Tribulation by having to learn hard lessons. We want to learn those lessons now. But even in that circumstance of tragedy and death and pestilence all around him, Verse 22, Lamentations 3. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. We come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Why are we not consumed? Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. So when you get up in the morning, think of this. Great is your faithfulness, Jeremiah says, towards God. So God gives us that invitation in Hebrews 4.16 to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. It's always a time of need for me. I don't know about you, but that's why we need to continually come before the throne of grace. Like to take surveys, so I'll take one a brief one here. How many of you know what is called the golden verse of the Bible or the most precious verse in the Bible? Let me see your hands. Okay, it's hard to see out there, but it looks like it's only about uh, 25.4 percent of you, and yet. If we're going to think like God thinks and we know who he is and what he is, we need to know what that precious verse is. It's simply John 3.16. You know the verse. You just didn't know that it was the most precious or perhaps the golden verse of the Bible. Let's turn to John 3.16. We want to think like God thinks. And so what does he think? What is he doing? John 3.16. For God so loved the world, not the ways of the world. He loved the people of the world. John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You've seen, uh, those of you who watch uh, uh, professional football, you see sometimes, I haven't seen it more recently, but in uh, past years, the end zone, they'll have somewhat John 3.16, a big banner, you know, back there so everyone can see it. Well, they don't really understand the true nature of John 3.16. And uh, Mr. Gerald Weston's had a series on the uh, in the Living Church News on John 3.16, taking each of these elements of John 3.16, and hopefully we'll have a booklet on that uh, sometime in the near future. God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do we remember the suffering and the passion of Christ every Passover and how God the Father was willing to give his son, symbolized, of course, by Abraham giving up Isaac in Genesis, the 22nd chapter, so very, very moving, that we should not perish. 
If you have an immortal life, then you're not going to perish. You have to be given the gift of everlasting life. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. We've just seen some encouraging scriptures revealing God's thoughts. God knows your thoughts. He knows my thoughts. He knows the thoughts of all human beings. So do we meditate on spiritual subjects and topics or carnal things? There are a lot of self-appointed intellectuals in the world. I'll just share what God says about them without turning to the Scriptures. In fact, we sang the song, uh, Oh, How Love I Your Law, on page 80. And of course, that was Psalm 119, but you may have not have noticed right across the page on uh, page 81 was also from Psalm 119. The title of that hymn was, I Hate the Thoughts of Vanity. So, <laughs> no, God does not appreciate the thoughts of vanity. Psalm 94.11, The Eternal knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. 1 Corinthians 3.20, The Eternal knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. That's the New King James Version. I presume the King James Version has they are vain. And that's what it is. That's Sorry, that's exactly what it says. 1 Corinthians 3.20, King James Version, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Or as the NASB has, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Well, God can give us understanding and knowledge only if we are teachable. We know Isaiah 66, 2, that God says, On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word is the one on whom I will look. So if we have that humility, we can learn. The intellectually proud individuals will not learn God's way. They're filled with intellectual vanity, and they cannot even begin to grow spiritually. When we read the Bible, we find the keys to spiritual growth, and these are fundamental, brethren, and I know you've heard them dozens of times, but let's really internalize these and practice these. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks. He's got walking, standing, and sitting. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And how many scorning people there are today. But his delight is in the law of the eternal, and in his law he meditates day and night. So not only night, but in the daytime. How do you apply God's principles of living day and night? The Sermon on the Mount, of course, magnifies the laws. The six of the basic commandments are six illustrations of the spiritual application of the commandments. The Sermon on the Mount. He meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in a season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. I used to uh, kid the summer educational program back in the 80s with the kids there. What, what are the two Ps of show the contrast of life in Psalm 1? Prosper and perish. Two ways of life. 
Verse 4, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the eternal knows the way of the righteous. He knows the way you are living, thinking, and interacting, whether you are applying that second great law that we heard about in the sermonette. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now the contrast of prospering or perishing. But one of the greatest keys for spiritual growth is meditation. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Verse 2. So meditation is, as we've said for decades, is one of those tools for spiritual growth. I remember a sermonette analogy some years ago that stuck with me that the uh, four tools of spiritual growth, as we call them, were like an automobile with four wheels on it. Prayer, meditation, fasting, and Bible study. If you take off one of the wheels, the car is going to move. I, I just appreciated that analogy. We need all of those four as a way of life, as a way of thinking. The worldly thinking has brought us to this end time in which we face cosmicide or will face cosmicide. I won't turn there, but it says in Genesis 6 and verse 5, Then the Eternal saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God took care of that and saved just eight people, Noah, a preacher of righteousness. But the way of man and that the every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Today's emailed Weekly Digest, and I hope you get the Living Church of God Weekly Digest in your email. If you're not a subscriber, I certainly encourage you to do that. The Weekly Digest uh, dated 3.16 a.m. today included a commentary by Mr. Mark Arsenault titled Mankind's Never-Ending Hope. He refers to a song in French, and I won't read the French part of it, but he uh, translates it as, Let us not kill the beauty of the world. Let's make the earth a big garden for those who are coming after us. Mr. Arsenault comments, what a beautiful hope, but again, humanity will not be able to bring it about. And he quotes Genesis 6-5, which I just read to you. By not acknowledging the way humanity is going right now, Mr. Arsenault writes, and by refusing to accept God and his way of life, humanity is destined to fail in bringing out the beauty of that world expressed in the song. So let's be honest with ourselves. How many of you have carnal thoughts or worldly thoughts? How many of your thoughts are godly? How many of your thoughts are ungodly? We have to overcome worldly thoughts. We have sermon number 792, The Battle for Your Mind by Dr. Douglas Winnale. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. 2 Corinthians 10. Yes, we all are tempted from time to time with wrong thoughts, with the appeals of the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 
vanity of thinking, of worldly thinking. Second Corinthians, the tenth chapter, Second Corinthians ten. How are you disciplining your thinking? Godly meditation helps you to have a more disciplined, godly mind. Second Corinthians ten and verse three. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Back in Romans 8, he says, We're not in the flesh if you are in the spirit. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians 10, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That is a very overarching instruction and command to bring every thought, yes, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So how do we overcome wrong thoughts? The answer is in the greatest battle for the control of the world that has ever taken place. And you know that in Matthew, the fourth chapter. Matthew 4, in verse 1. How do you bring every thought into captivity? Matthew 4. Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4, verse 1. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, wait a minute. Did Jesus hear what Satan said? If you are the Son of Man, command that these stones become bread. He would have been obeying Satan. That was not a godly thought. But how did Christ counter that, that ungodly thought, that satanic Temptation, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, of course, that's from Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. Every time he said, It is written, you know, verse 4, and verse 6, It is written, and then verse 7, It is written. He fought that temptation. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up unto the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, and lest you dash your foot against a stone. So Satan was twisting the Scripture. But Jesus said, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Did Jesus hear that? Did he process that blasphemous thought in Jesus' mind? He heard it. It was a blasphemous thought. But what did Jesus do? He didn't sin. He immediately rejected that blasphemous thought. And that's the test in your mind, when you are tempted with wrong thoughts, are you able to f immediately identify it as a sinful, tempting, satanic 
selfish, sinful thought. You need to have your senses sharpened, as it says there in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, leading up to the basic doctrines in Hebrews 6, to have your exercise sense, uh, sensitized because you are exercising faith and discernment. And you're sons and daughters of light because you're watching and you're sober. But what did Jesus say? Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Dr. Barath has shared the times when he was being attacked by Satan and had wrong thoughts. When I was a bachelor as a transportation engineer in Virginia Beach, Virginia, back in 1961-62, Satan put blasphemous thoughts in my mind. And I had to battle that. Of course, Mr. Armstrong used to say, if you want to get air out of a bottle, you put water in. You replace wrong thoughts with right thoughts. And over the years, even now, when a wrong thought will come into mind, I'll immediately ask God to help me to overcome it or reject that thought immediately as recognize that it is not a godly thought. We are in the battle for our mind, as uh, Dr. Doug Winnell's sermon brought out. But Jesus battled with the Word, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So God has given us that mind power. He's given us the ability to bring every thought into captivity. So how many thoughts do you have that are godly and how many ungodly? And are you really fighting those temptations that come along? Hopefully you are, and you're growing in the mind of Christ, and you're able to fight uh, satanic and wrong thoughts the same way Christ did as he did in that classic battle of Matthew, the fourth chapter. We need the Word of God written on our hearts and minds so that we can always resist the flashes of wrong thoughts that come into our mind. Well, how many thoughts do you have a day? I've brought this out to you some years ago. According to Quick Fixes for Everyday Fears, a book by Michael Clarkson, on page 5 of his book, he writes, quote, The average person has 66,000 thoughts per day, two-thirds of them negative. The University of Wisconsin research shows that of the things people worry about, 40% are about things that never occur, 30% about things from the past, 12% are needless concerns about health, 10% are petty and miscellaneous cares, and only 8% are legitimate concerns. In other words, most worry is wasted, even counterproductive energy, end of quote. Well, I don't know if he's accurate in having, we're having 66,000 thoughts a day. Uh, other researchers put it as high as 70,000. So, but how many of those thoughts are harmonious with godly character? That Christ is living his life in you. He's living his life in me. Let's turn uh, over a couple pages here to Matthew 6. In verse 33, again, when I took surveys, only about 20% of our brethren actually know the very goal, or perhaps have not just identified the scripture of their life and their being. The first law of success is to fix the right goal. And Jesus gives that to us in Matthew 6.33. But seek first 
not second, not third, not fourth, but seek first the kingdom of God and His, and His righteousness. And I know that many teenagers have learned to resist the righteousness of their peers because it's not God's righteousness. They know, as we heard in the youth choir today, the Ten Commandments, and they're able to discern what's right and what's wrong. They're seeking God's righteousness, not the righteousness of the world, the righteousness of their peers. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But when we establish godly priorities, we have peace of mind. Those who meditate on God's law day and night will prosper. But how many of us really take time this past week or any time? Sabbath, of course, is one of those wonderful times in order to do that, to think about the deeper things in life and what what is important, what is uh, deep. Calvin uh, was actually challenging Hobbes, the tiger, Calvin the precocious little boy was uh, challenging Hobbes on the purpose of life. Uh, First frame, they're both sitting, leaning up against a tree, kind of contemplative. And little Calvin says to the tiger Hobbes, why do you suppose we're here? Hobbes says, because we walked here. Calvin says, no, no, I, I mean here on earth. The tiger says, because earth can support life. And Calvin says, no, I mean, why are we anywhere? Why do we exist? The tiger says, because we were born. And Calvin says, forget it. And the tiger says, I will, thank you. So they they just didn't communicate well. (laughs) And, And Hobbes didn't really know the answer to the question of his very purpose in life. Well, why is godly meditation so important? Because God wants us to think the way he thinks. Turn back to Philippians 2, verse 5. We read that before, but the verses following are very important as well. Philippians 2, Philippians, the second chapter. Sip of tea here. Philippians 2, we can start with uh, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. You are a servant of God. You're recapturing one of those values in fulfilling one of the sevenfold mission statements of exercising servant leadership. You value others better than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You're discerning of the needs of others. You want to help them. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So how do you have the mind of Christ? By taking the form of a bondservant. So his main way of life, he said, he came not to destroy, but to save. And so Christ gives us that example of what to think about and what to meditate on. I asked my wife one time, what is meditation? And she said, it's deep thought about a subject with God's guidance for deeper understanding of truth on a subject. So that's very thoughtful. Unger's Bible Dictionary, and one uh, I would recommend to you, is a fairly good conservative Bible Dictionary. You might think of, if you don't have one, maybe purchasing it for a feast gift, a feast of tabernacles. Meditation from the New Unger's Bible Dictionary. Quote, a private devotional act consisting in deliberate reflection upon some spiritual truth or mystery accompanied by mental prayer and by acts of the affection and of the will, especially formation of resolutions as to future conduct. So you come to a conclusion at the end of your meditation. Why am I alive? I'm here to fulfill the Father's will and to do his work, as Jesus said in John 4, verse 34. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What is your mission statement. Why are you alive? Meditation is a duty, continues Ungers, it ought to be attended to by all who wish well to their spiritual interests. It should be deliberate, close, and continuous. So I hope that I won't take a survey and ask how many of you meditate, and and, uh, you may do it formally, you may be meditating and not really labeling it as meditation, but you know, I, I meditate in bed and in the morning and sometimes in the evening as I'm up two or three times in the middle of the night and uh, I go back in the bed and I start praying. Sometimes I'll even think about quoting scripture or sometimes thinking about various subjects. Now, this is Lesson 23 of Tomorrow's World Bible Study Course uh, written by, of course, Mr. John O'Gwynn. Tools for Spiritual Growth, uh, Lesson 23, Part C, The Importance of Meditation. Many people misunderstand the concept of meditation. Eastern religions, such as Buddhism, may talk about meditation, but means something very different from the biblical concept. In biblical terms, meditation simply involves giving deep thought to a particular subject. What does the Bible actually say about meditation and its importance? So he asks, should we give continual thought and meditation to applying the principles of God's word more fully in our lives? He gives reference Joshua 1.8. He asks the question number 13, did David's meditation sometimes serve as prelude to his prayers to God? Psalm 49, verses 1 through 4. The modern lesson on fasting. Mr. O'Gwyn writes, this is, Lesson 23, page 9. Speaking about Mr. Armstrong's uh, habit and routine of fasting and meditation, 
He spent the next hour in contemplation and meditation after looking up the Scriptures, thinking about what he had read. He tried to examine his own life in the recent past and to compare it with what he had read. Then he spent the third hour on his knees in prayer to God. Never once during his prayer did he ask God to heal his wife. He had been doing that for weeks with no real results. Rather, he asked for understanding of what God wanted him to see. And that's, of course, from Mr. Armstrong's autobiography. Though the course of the next day and a half, Mr. Armstrong kept up the same rotating pattern of Bible study, meditation, and prayer. And so he tells about the answered prayer later on. So I don't know how often you meditate, but I remember one time when I was purposely meditating on the Ten Commandments. We had that wonderful song by the youth choir today. I was, I think it was my second year in Ambassador College, and every night when I went to bed, I would select one of the Ten Commandments and just think about it. And, of course, you ask the questions, who, what, why, when, and where. And when I finally got to the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, and I was probably age 26 or 27 at that point in my life, and I started to think about my relationship with my father and mother and how my mother must have changed my diapers when I was a baby and how I had disrespected my father and yet how he had been kind enough to teach me chess and take me places. And that meditation that night, I came to a point where I actually bawled. I, I cried because God helped me to see and looking into the mirror of his law after meditating on the fifth commandment how I had not respected my father and mother. And it really changed my whole attitude and communication pattern with my father and mother. I wrote to them continuously, not continuously, uh, frequently. I called them up on the telephone long distance from Pasadena to Connecticut, which at that time was a little costly for a student's small income. But it changed my life. So I hope that all of you can set aside time to actually focus on one particular topic and think about it. One of the ways of uh, learning more about meditation is by a Bible chain. Some of you do that frequently, some of you do not. I uh, did this morning. I went ahead and looked up the word meditate or meditation in the book of Psalms. And we might just take a couple minutes here to look at a few of them. I think we have a little time left. Psalm 4 and verse 4. David was one who meditated. We just read that in Psalm 1. Psalm 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. See law. One of the places you can meditate is on your bed. Of course, some of you might just go conk out right away. Uh, Others of us have to uh, think about getting to sleep. Turn over the page. Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Eternal. Consider my meditation. Psalm 9 and uh, verse 16. The Eternal is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Then you find this strange insertion, just the word meditation, silah, which basically is saying, okay, stop and think about what you've just read. Meditate on it. And 
try to come to an understanding, try to come to some conclusion. I'll take one more before we skip. Let's go ahead and skip over to Psalm 119, because there you find several references to meditation. Psalm 119, verse 15. King David says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And down in verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. And some of us have seen some of these uh, wonderful videos of uh, animals and beasts and birds and insects and how God has created them. One that uh, some one of you sent me here, a video uh, showed the dragonfly, you know, the four wings. I happened to mention that, I think, in a sermon earlier. And after that, here's this video showing the four wings of a dragonfly, and each of those wings operates independently. And so the dragonfly can actually hover, it can fly upside down, it can actually go backwards, because God has designed each one of those four wings to operate independently. Just incredible. So David says, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. Turn over the page and I will meditate on your statutes, verse 48. I will meditate on your precepts, verse 78. And then, of course, the one we all know and we sang already this morning, uh, this afternoon in our hymn, hymn number 80 in our hymn book, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So we are young people. Our youth have more understanding than their science teachers, particularly if the science teachers teaching evolution and is ignoring the reality of God and his awesome creation. So they may not have more mathematical ability, but they have more spiritual understanding than their teachers. I understand more than the ancients, David says in verse 100, because I keep your precepts. He says in Psalm 119, verse 148, when does he meditate? My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Then, of course, Psalm 119, verse 165, great peace have they of those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. So I hope that you study through your scriptures on the benefits of meditation. You know, godly meditation will help you to pray even more effectively. Let's turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, God's word helps us to pray. Our meditation helps us to pray. Now, I've been asked by, you know, some people who are new in the faith and wondering, well, I, I, I have a difficulty to pray. I don't know what to pray about. I said, well, two pro easy approaches. One, just start thanking God. Uh, count your blessings. Another way is just pray about what you read in the Bible. You'll never end out, never end 
in material to pray about. Just read something in the Bible and pray about it. Well, here in Psalm 139, uh, David is thinking about God's thoughts. Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Verse 17, he's, he's contemplating even the whole matter of birth and the being in the womb. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. Verse 17. We thought about some of those, John 3.16, Lamentations 3.22, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, some of those thoughts that God thinks. And David says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. He had that closeness to God. What encourages us to think more deeply? Well, sometimes it's when we face the reality of death. Dr. Meredith wrote an old article, Why Did God Let Jimmy Die? His teen friend was killed in a wrestling match. And in the January-February 2011 Tomorrow's World magazine titled, What is the Meaning of Your Life?, Uh, Dr. Meredith rehearsed that memory. Quote, Over the next several years after Jimmy's death, I continued to meditate on these things. I tried to think through why we were born, what life was really all about, and what was the ultimate purpose for our lives. Our local Protestant preacher droned on and on with nice generalities, being good citizens, being kind to others, perhaps sending help to the starving Chinese, as we supposed they were back then. Although our pastors do good thoughts were probably helpful in a way, they did not even stir me to any kind of particular action, nor did they even begin to answer the growing questions in my mind as to why we are really here. Why must all humans suffer and die? If we were to go to heaven after death, as my preacher said, would we just sit up there playing harps with nothing to do? Is that all there is, I wondered? I think several of us have gone through that same kind of similar experience. So we have to think more deeply about life and death. Meditation helps us to be success in life. It draws us closer to God. It helps us to see God's creation, His nature, and His character even more wonderfully. There are certain methods for meditating. One is by using a notepad, which sometimes I do. Well, uh, I actually have to have a lesson that I've given to myself. This, of course, is my week at a glance, and I've written down of lesson number 1404, write it down. Of course, when we get a little old, you can't remember everything you think, so, so I'm going to have to write down my thoughts. And uh, years ago, and I think Dottie McNair uh, could not confirm, but I thought that Carl McNair 
when he was sleeping at night, would thought would come to him, would get out and have a tape recorder so he didn't have to get up and record his thoughts so he wouldn't lose them. Well, Mrs. McNair said, well, he did actually have a tape recorder when he was traveling, and he would record his thoughts so he wouldn't lose them. So I have to write it down and, and realize, here are these thoughts. I don't want to forget some of these thoughts. You get in a quiet and private place. You ask God for understanding. And you ask the questions, who, what, why, when, where, which, and how. Uh, how is one of the best questions to ask and why. Mr. Armstrong, as a boy, thought he might become a streetcar motorman. In his autobiography, volume 1, page 13, he wrote, I do remember, though, that my father had a different idea of what I would be when I grew up. I was constantly pestering him with questions. I always seemed to want to know why or how. I wanted to understand. At age five, I can remember my father saying, quote, that youngin is always asking so many questions, he's sure to be a Philadelphia lawyer when he grows up, end of quote. That obsession for understanding was to have great influence on founding the Plain Truth magazine in Ambassador College in later years. We have to be careful when we meditate and we come to conclusions, we do research, particularly when it comes to biblical and doctrinal matters, that we have those thoughts and those ideas tested. That's why we have a council of elders and we test the doctrines and the thoughts and the studies and the research that may be presented by one of the council members. Might turn to Proverbs 18. We're here in just a few pages forward. We're in the book of Psalms, Proverbs 18. And I know some of my evangelist friends who left the truth and went off on their own did not have wise counsel for their thinking. And so it tells us in Proverbs 18, verse 1 a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. That's why Dr. Meredith has a council of elders. He will take counsel. You know the proverb, in the multitude of counsel, there is safety. And if you're going to make war, you need counselors. So we're very thankful. We have our spokesman club uh, principle, Proverbs 27:17, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, it just is sad to me to see that those who've gone out by themselves will not expose themselves to counsel or to constructive criticism. There's a difference between being critical and being constructive in your helping and testing your thoughts. So we need to think about God's law. We need to think about the statutes that Dr. Meredith has talked about over a period of time. We need to think about God's work. So what do you think about? Dr. Meredith has a passion for fulfilling the mission that Christ has given the church. His thoughts are on the work that God has given us to accomplish. He's thinking ahead. How can we improve? What are some of the strategies? What are some of the newer approaches that we can use to be more effective in preaching the gospel? and fulfilling the mission that Christ has given us. This, your church bulletin, shows the telecast.
for this weekend, uh, Dr. Meredith's program, God's Master Plan. And I hope that all of you are watching the telecast. I, every time I go out somewhere and I say, how many of you have seen a Tomorrow's World telecast, I'm disappointed at the response. And I won't take a survey here. I don't want to embarrass you at the moment. But the number one mission Christ has given us is to go into all the world and preach the gospel unto all the creatures and to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we're doing that. At the moment, the telecast is the spearhead for that effort, that media effort. We have the other effective areas of publications and the Internet as well. But I want to urge all of you, and if I were you, and I did not have high-speed Internet, and I was not able to get the telecast and see it tomorrow morning on WGN America at 8.30 or on WAXN at uh, 7 o'clock, uh, or Monday night on WHKY at 7.30, I would want to go out and buy a DVD. And DVDs, I was testing mention that in Norfolk. Uh, well, about $60? No. Someone said, no, no. You get a DVD player for less than $60. I want the kingdom of God. If I want the kingdom of God, I want to know what is Jesus Christ preaching. And I will go all out. I will, if I can't see the telecast on the Internet, I will buy, or hopefully someone will give to me, a DVD player, and I will check out a DVD uh, of the Tomorrow's World telecast from our church library, or I will beg uh, someone at headquarters to give me a DVD of the telecast so I can see what Christ is preaching to the world. And if some of you are, don't have that degree of desire to know what Christ is preaching, please repent and stir yourself up to support the preaching of the gospel, meaning that you are actually watching the telecast. You know what is going on. And I hope that all of you will. Of course, many of you do have your iPads, and you can get it 24-7. Uh, some of you are doing that, and that's commendable if you have the discipline to actually watch the program all the way through. But uh, anyway, I hope that you'll do that, and most of us will be seeing it tomorrow morning or uh, Monday evening, Dr. Murder's program on God's master plan. So it's very important. What should you meditate on? God's work, the telecast, the co-worker letter. Do you respond to that? Do you really realize this is from Jesus Christ? I'm going to respond. I'm going to Think about it. I'm going to think about what Dr. Meredith wrote. You just uh, mailed out here this past week. You should be getting the next one this coming week, this uh, next co-worker letter. The Bible study course. You're praying that new people will be studying the Bible study course and be more deeply involved, and they will be called by God to be a part of the body of Christ. The booklets, the websites, the Tomorrow's World uh, presentations. You heard in the announcements today we have... Uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, uh, tomorrow's world presentation today and tomorrow in Buffalo, New York by uh, Jonathan McNair. So we'll be praying for those. I'm very thankful for Mr. Rod McNair's and Mr. Phil West's TWP last week in Chicago. They had 162 visitors and 68 members for a total of 240. So we're very thankful for that. So we'll be praying continuously 
I've exhorted you on this before, and I'll exhort you again. Matthew, the ninth chapter. Matthew 9. Are you praying what Jesus Christ tells you to pray? Matthew, the ninth chapter, and verse 37. Well, I'll start with verse 36. He was moved when he saw the multitudes with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Matthew 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I might just mention, of course, in passing that um, you need to pray Matthew 24, 20. Jesus said, Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. It's a reminder to pray what Jesus tells you to pray about. We're thankful that we have added many more members, many more co-workers, donors, uh, ministers, and laborers in the harvest, but keep praying about that. So, brethren, God wants us to think like he thinks. We need to think and visualize the future, and, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles will help us to refresh our vision of tomorrow's world. We can visualize peace on earth during the millennium and hopefully you've read the booklet and reread it, The World Ahead, What Will It Be Like? You can visualize God's throne as you read Revelation, the fourth chapter. You can visualize the new Jerusalem as you read Revelation 21. Godly meditation is a vital key to spiritual growth. Are you loving God with your mind How many of your thoughts are godly thoughts? He wants us to think like he thinks. He's called us to be the world's greatest thinkers because we think spiritually, because we have the Spirit of God and we're striving to bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit, of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, and faithfulness, and self-control. So meditate on the Scriptures daily and saturate your mind with the Word of God. Your character, your mind, and your spirit will grow in the nature of Christ. So this week, think deeply, see the big picture, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, visualize God's way of life, of peace for all humanity, and let's look forward to the resurrection in the not-too-distant future. So this week, brethren, practice godly meditation. It's time to smell the roses, take time to meditate, and may we all pray as King David prayed Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer.